So as we prepare our hearts for Passion Week, as for celebrating the resurrection, this year the the sermon series is called Polaroid, and we are looking at some Polaroid pictures, some snapshots of the Old Testament and what they teach us about the death of Christ. The series had its foundation in, in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, which says, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets, they're telling us about the salvation that we have in Christ. The Old Testament preaches and teaches about Jesus Christ being the Savior. And so we decided, I decided, that we would see what some of those Polaroid images look like. Dig out the old family album, find out what they can teach us. How can they add some depth and and understanding to what we are going to celebrate through Passion Week? Last week we looked at a serpent on a stick. Believe and find deliverance when then the people were bitten by the snake bite and they looked up at the bronze serpent. Now, I sort of did promise obscure passages, and I probably selected this week one of the least obscure passages. <laughs> we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, the sacrifice of, of um, Isaac by Abraham. And one of the most famous stories from his life, where he is told by God to take Isaac, his son, and sacrifice him to God. So, this Polaroid, let's begin with the problems. Let's acknowledge that this isn't, you know, there are some problems with this picture. The first and biggest problem deals with the issue of the character of God, right? How could a loving God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Now, some critics, they just dismiss the story on the grounds that it presents really a big problem with the character of God. And it's a grotesque picture, they say. Because if God could ever command his children to do something wrong, then we've got big problems with the kind of God that we worship. And all parents, we are repulsed by the idea of sacrificing a child. So this story is difficult to understand. And we assume that since we're repulsed by it, God must be repulsed by it. But we're forced to the conclusion that the sacrifice of Isaac, it could not have been wrong because God is incapable of doing evil. And God actually did sacrifice his son. Was that wrong? So perhaps the only adequate reply is the obvious one, that we humans are hardly in a position to judge God. We have no grounds whatsoever to do that. The second problem with this text is sort of related to the first. Because we all think that that the problem of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, we, we have this unconscious tendency to look at the end of the story and let the beginning of the story color be colored by the end of the story. We start with the fact that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, which which I hope you knew, with with the fact that, well, then, God really never did want him to do that, so it's okay. And that statement is true on some level, but you risk the meaning of the text if you go too far down that road. Because whatever else might be true, it is unquestionable that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's what he did. And yet God did not require him to do 
anything which God himself did not do or would not do. The whole story seems to be a Polaroid of what God would do centuries later on the cross. So by only, by, only by understanding this Polaroid image, the significance of the sacrifice of Isaac, can we grasp God's command that it was holy and just and pure. So let's look at the Polaroid itself. Let's walk through the text. Hopefully you have your Bibles. Open them to Genesis chapter 22. Let's, let's walk through the story, find out what actually happened, and discover what it means for our lives after that. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, maybe upwards of 10 years after, after the close of chapter 21, so Isaac's not, not a kid. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will, tell, I will show you. It would have been enough if he just said, take your son, but then he's got these three statements that qualify it to make sure he doesn't miss it. Your only son. Now, there is Ishmael, but he wasn't the son of promise. This is your only son of promise. Isaac, he names him for, for they've been waiting for Isaac for 25 years. He shows up and now, whom you love. Which might seem as if God were mocking him, but I think they were meant to reassure him that God knew what he was asking. You need to do this. And by saying it this way, Abraham would know that God understood what the cost was going to be for Abraham. He wanted Abraham to travel with his son to Moriah, modern-day Jerusalem, and build an altar of stones on one of the mountains. Then he would make a platform of wood on those stones, and then Abraham was to ask Isaac to lay down on the stones, on the wood, take a knife, slit his throat, and let the wood on fire and consume. That's a burnt offering. That's what God told Abraham to do. At that point, Abraham has two options. Either he can obey or not. Either you stop and argue, which in a sense is a form of disobedience. You can offer an alternative plan, which is sort of disobedience too. But God asked Abraham to put his own son to death you get nothing of the reaction of Abraham to this story or to this command. And I think Abraham would react like any parent would react. But the details, those details aren't important to the story. Moses leaves those out. I'm sure he wasn't thrilled, but he did agree to do it. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, it took three days to get there, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Several things are important, I think. Abraham's obedience was immediate. The next day, he just did this. Second, it's unquestioning. We get no questions from him. And third, it's, it is filled with faith. 
Is it merely wishful thinking that he tells his servants, well, we're going to come back? I mean, had God ever promised anywhere in this story to spare his son? No. Yet somehow understood enough of the character of God. Abraham understood enough of the character of God that he was willing to do what God required in the faith that somehow God would work out the details. This is his son. This is the heir. Get rid of Isaac. There is no heir. And so he takes the wood for the burnt offering. He places it on his son, and Isaac carries it. Abraham's got the fire and the knife. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abra- to his, to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. You see, somehow Abraham understood something about the substitutionary atonement. God's going to provide the lamb. Verse 9, when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He did what he was told to do. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Yes. Was it a legitimate request? Yes. Did Abraham know in advance how this story would end? No. Specifically, did he know about the ram in the thicket? No. So what did he know? He knew what God had asked him to do, And he knew that God had promised to give him a son and that through this son, he would bless the world. So that's the picture. That's the Polaroid right there. So what do we take home from that? I think we can take home three things. Number one, what do I see in this Polaroid as I look at it? I see faith at its highest point. In Genesis 22, we discover Abraham's faith at its pinnacle. It doesn't get any better than this in his life. And even though the command made no sense from a human point of view, Abraham said, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. But that had not been the habit of his life. It's been a long and a very difficult road to get Abraham to that point of faith. But now he faces the ultimate test of his faith, How did he get there? 
Well, some tests, if you recall, he handled very well. He believed God. He left Haran. He left Ur of the Chaldees to come to Canaan. He believed the promise that God would give him a son no matter what, even in his old age. He believed God enough to give Lot the choice between the good land and the bad land. And he interceded for Lot when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot was living. Some things he handled really well. Other things, not so much. You're in a famine. He escapes. He runs to Egypt because there's food there. And at least twice in his life, he feared for his life so much that he, he didn't tell the leadership. He didn't tell Pharaoh who, that, that Sarah was really his wife. Then he listened to his wife and took Hagar for an heir. And you got Ishmael. If mo, in most of these, if not all of them, they're really life and death tests. Would God provide Abraham during a time of famine? Would God protect Abraham and Sarah even if the truth about their relationship was known? Could Abraham and Sarah, though as good as dead, really bear a child and not have to do this Hagar switch thing? And now in chapter 22, God says, take your son, your only son, and take him to the mountain of my choosing and sacrifice him there. I can't imagine how that hit Abraham the first time. And I'm sure there was a struggle within him. So Moses simply tells us that Abraham did what God commanded. Hebrews 11, verse 17, some 20 centuries later, the writer of the Hebrews explains it this way. He says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. His intention was to, to use the knife. He meant to obey the command of God, even if it meant killing the promised one. How could he do such a thing? How could he think he could do such a thing? Hebrews says because he believed that God would just raise him from the dead if that would happen. It had taken Abraham years of walking with God to get his faith mature enough to handle this test. This isn't something that just happened overnight. This is not a fluke in his life. He had walked with God for decades. And then he's ready to face this test. Walking with God is a step-by-step-by-step -step -step process. Christian maturity involves time. It involves growth in the knowledge of God's Word and who He is. It involves experience, life experience, in using that Word to discern between good and evil. Hebrews 5, in fact, though by this time, you know, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of the God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Verse 14, but solid food is from the mature. How do you get mature? By constant use, we have trained themselves 
to distinguish from good and evil. You need the meat of the word. You need to put it into practice. You need to not give up walking with God. Sometimes I think the fundamental divide between the followers of Jesus on the one side and Western culture on the other may be this. One side thinks the highest debt that you owe is to yourself. Seek your own happiness. The other side, our side, says that you owe your creator your fidelity, your faithfulness, and your submission. Abraham had gotten to the point where he owed God everything. But it takes time to develop that kind of a walk with God where you put your faith in God above everything else. Abraham put God first. He didn't always, but he did here. Faith at its highest point. Second thing I see is God asking me to open my hands. I see God saying, open your hands. You see, Genesis 22, it's not over yet. Contains another scene in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. See, it's all beginning to become clear. God intended to bless Abraham from the beginning. And here you have, after this test of faith, I think it's the third time the covenant is repeated to Abraham. And the chapter ends, it's still not over, with this list of names of Abraham's family. And tucked in verse 23, it says, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Rebekah becomes the wife of Isaac. There's hope. Through all of this, God is preparing a bride for his heir. You see, God cannot do what he did without putting Abram to the ultimate test. And in this case, that meant Abraham was asked to sacrifice the most precious thing in his life. In a sense, you might put it this way. God needed to, to know something, and Abraham needed to know something. God needed to know if Abraham would put his son ahead of his God. And Abraham needed to know if God could be trusted completely. Now, when I say God needed to know, I don't mean that literally, because God already knew what Abraham was going to do. But the text says this angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God. You see, Abraham's willing to, willingness to sacrifice Isaac demonstrated an unquestioned obedience to God. He was willing to do that. And so God knows what's, what level of faith Abraham had. Abraham knows, Isaac knows, and thousands of years later, we all know. Abraham fears God, and he wants to please him. Seen in this light, I think that the text is simple to explain. 
but it also takes us a lifetime to apply. In fact, I dare say God keeps leading us all up to Mount Moriah over and over and over again. In one of his books, Watchman Nee says that we approach God like little children. We're, you know, open hands. We're begging him for gifts. And because he's good, he, he fills our hands with good things. And we grasp and hold on to them. Life and health and friends and money and success and family and recognition and marriage and kids, grandkids. Good job. All these things that we celebrate every Thanksgiving. And so like children, we rejoice in what we've received and we go run around, what do we do? We compare what we have in our hands with what somebody else has in their hands. And when our hands are finally full, God says, my child, I long to have fellowship with you. Reach out and take my hand. And we can't because it's full of stuff. And God says, put those things aside and take my hand. Well, I can't. It's, it's too hard to put them down. What God, what you've asked us is too hard. But I gave you those things in the first place. And God quietly says, you have to. You have to let them go. You're holding on too tightly. I read this chapter and I learn this. God owns everything. I own nothing. And to say it that way raises a question about our text, which I'm not sure I can actually answer. Had Isaac become too important to Abraham? Was he holding way too tightly? Was this child of promise loved too much? Had he begun to take the place of God in Abraham's thinking? I have no idea. But that does happen to us, doesn't it? All of us. God orchestrates the affairs of life, the good and the bad, to bring us the place where we will be able to deepen our faith in God and put our faith only in God. Slowly but surely, as we walk through life, he begins to pry open our hands. He weans us away from the things of this world. And at first, maybe he touches only our possessions, which we can get back again. But eventually it might touch our relationships, which can't be replaced, or our loved ones. Finally, he touches us with life itself which never is replaced. But he wants us to get us to the place where there's nothing but God. And through this process, our Father leads us along the pathway of complete trust in him. And slowly but surely, we discover that the things that we thought we couldn't live without, we can and even the dearest and the sweetest things of life take second place to knowing God. And in the end, we discover that he's emptied our hands of everything and he's filled our hands with himself. And as I say these things, I'm very much aware that I have no idea what that all means. I still got a lot of things in my hands 
my wife and my kids, my friends, my career, my health, my dreams, my plans for the future. But the process of growing older is nothing more than this, learning to hold loosely or lightly what God has given us because I cannot keep them forever anyway. And at any moment he can take them, one or two at a time, or all of them together. And he can take the life he gave me 67 years ago if he wants to. If I have any advice, it is this. Learn to hold lightly what God has given you. And maybe you're in the midst of a struggle in life. You feel pressured about something and you don't want to give it up. Well, you have to. And you will eventually. <laughs> but I can't spare you the pain of yielding your dearest treasures to God. But I can say, as you do, you will find and discover the greatest treasure that you will ever discover. And that pain will far outweigh, the pain of giving it up will far outweigh the joy of that closeness and walking with God. One other thought, what happens in Genesis 23? You don't have to look there, I'll tell you. In Genesis 23, Abraham's beloved Sarah dies. And in God's grace, maybe Genesis 22 is a preparation for the loss he will experience in chapter 23. Because it does seem that a huge problem in Abraham's life has always been this unhealthy attachment to his family. He gets called from Ur, he goes to Haran, but he stays at Haran till his father dies. I'm not gonna leave everything. He comes to the land and he's got this relationship with Lot that, that becomes a problem. But finally in chapter 22, his hands are open and they are empty. His faith and his support are in God and God alone. I see faith at its highest point. I see God asking me to open my hands. And third, I see God providing a substitute. This is a story of the, of the pageant of the love of God. Another link in the chain of, of this preparation for the, for the truth of the substitution that Jesus would provide. And in Genesis 22, we learn another of the names of God. What does he call God after this incident? God, he calls him Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Jireh. God will provide. Notice what? Not so strong in the English, but it's a future tense. It's not God has provided. His name is God will provide. God chose a name, or Abraham chose a name for God which was in the future tense. The story is meant to look forward, not backward to what Abraham did and God did for Abraham. He is looking for a lamb to sacrifice. What a common theme in the Old Testament. In Eden, God told Adam and Eve, you know, if you do this, if you sin, you're gonna surely die. And when they ate of that fruit, they didn't die physically. Maybe they expected to, but they didn't. 
But God did something wonderful in the garden. He promised a deliverer who would come someday and destroy Satan and restore Adam and Eve to paradise. And he did one other thing. He demonstrated the nature of the coming deliverer's work. God killed two animals and used the skin of each animal to clothe them, to cover them. Substitution. There was no burnt offering in Genesis 3, but the implication is the same as Genesis 22. God will provide the sacrifice. On Mount Sinai, several centuries later, God comes and he gives the law on Mount Sinai. And while Moses is up at the top of the mountain, you know what the people are doing. They're down making a golden calf. Come on, folks. And the, Moses comes down. He sees what's going on. He's devastated. He's angry. And he pleads for his people. But he does what God tells him to do. And then he goes back up. Exodus 32, 31 says, So Moses went back up to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. He begs for their forgiveness. Is there anything you can do to show them mercy? And then the sentence breaks off rather dramatically. In, in the NIV, it's just a dash, and it kind of stops, and you hold there. And he's pleading for the mercy of God. How's God going to do this? I don't know. And then he says, well, wait a minute. I got an idea. If you can't show them that mercy, then blot me out of the book you've written. Take my life for theirs. Substitution. He's asking to be sent to hell himself if salvation could be given to his people. But Moses couldn't be a substitute. He's a sinner. He's a murderer. Moses couldn't be the lamb. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? If, Moses, if Abraham were there, he would say, God will provide a lamb in his own time. In the life of David, his horrible sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, he finally confesses after a long time in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David knew that wasn't really going to work. Those, those sacrifices, you can do all you want. That's not the ultimate solution. But he does say, cleanse me by the blood. Forgive me and regard me as cleansed on the basis of this innocent victim who's died. It was an illustration. He must have cried out in his heart, where is the lamb? I want that one of ultimate cleansing. And Abraham would say to David, God will provide the lamb. In the prophets, they speak of such a lamb, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace, that brought us peace was on him. This is the lamb, and Abraham says, God will do it, he'll provide that lamb. At the Jordan River, a new prophet appears on the scene. His name was John. He's baptizing people in the river. John 1, the next day, Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the one we've been waiting for. Here's the one Abraham looked for. 
And so disciples follow this true lamb. And on Palm Sunday, some three years later, it's the date Nisan 10, which is Lamb Selection Day. What does Jesus do? He rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Josephus will say on Passover, some 256,000 lambs are slaughtered every year. And later that week, when the lambs are killed, Jesus climbed up. Where did he climb? 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build a temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Now, who knows exactly the same, you know, but the truth is this. The climax of Old Testament revelation God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. Where? On Mount Moriah. Where Abraham offered his son. See, when God killed those animals to clothe Adam and Eve, how many did he kill? Two. One per person. At the Passover, how many lambs are killed? One per household. On the Day of Atonement, How many are killed? One. One for the nation. When Jesus climbs Mount Moriah, it is one for the world. One lamb for all time. And the question of Isaac is finally answered. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, God has provided the lamb. Jesus is our burnt offering. In Genesis 22, we see what a man would do for his love of God. And at the cross, we see what God would do for his love of man. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God was actually sacrificing his only son. And more than that, Jesus endured the physical death and the spiritual separation from his father to make ready our salvation. And when God's hand was raised at Calvary on his own son, there was no voice to cry out, stop, do not harm the child. There was no ram in the thicket to take the place of his son. So God's hand fell in judgment on his own son, and Jesus died for us. That's what God did for you and me. How much does he love us? Where there's a cross soaked in blood, and it's there you'll find the answer, that he who spared not his own son but gave him up freely for us all. That's God's love for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you today. Just a Polaroid, probably a very famous Polaroid, but still a hint that we learn from the Old Testament the importance of substitution. A lamb for our sin but that was only temporary until the solution could be brought once and for all. That you did not spare your own son. 
So as we try to grow in our faith, as we try to grasp, open the, the, our hands and, and, and give you control of all of our life, let us remember we do so with the sense that you truly do love us. How deep and broad and wide is your love for us. Let us worship that kind of a God today. In Jesus' name, amen.